Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, my first guest today is someone I've always regarded as a thought-provoking journalist and writer, whether you agreed or disagreed with his point of view. In the run-up to the marriage equality referendum, he was defamed by a prominent pro-equality campaigner and subsequently resigned from the Irish Times, where he'd been for 24 years. There's no keeping a good man down, as John Waters returns with his ninth book called Give Us Back the Bad Roads. John, you're very welcome to Late Lunch. Thank you very much. Thank Craig. you for joining me. The title of the book, let's get straight into this, really says it all. You bemoan this Ireland of the 21st century for a plethora of reasons. Yet we're all led to believe, John, ah, we never had it so good. I know, I know. And, and people are actually pummeled and indoctrinated with this idea that whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not, this is the best thing for them and uh, I just don't agree with that at all and that's not been my experience and that's essentially why I wrote the book I mean the title it's not literal. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a metaphorical title, you know, uh, give us back the bad roads. It's a cry of exasperation, I suppose. And uh, deeper than that is probably uh, saying, well, you know, we need to go back. You know, C.S. Lewis, people often think, you know, now I've, I've actually found, whereas once I was regarded as a lefty, now I'm regarded as a reactionary and, and traditionalist and right-winger and conservative. And actually, that isn't the case. I mean, I'm, I would say, a very eccentric um, radical person. And uh, uh, C.S. Lewis had a thing where he said about being progressive, you know, progressiveness. He said, when, you know, because this is what these people call themselves, they're progressives. And he says, you know, when you're, everybody wants progress, but when you're on the wrong road, the most progressive person is the one that goes backwards fastest. And that's me, you know, because I think that's where we, we are now. I mean, uh, this is what the book is really about. Because mm. And I'm trying to say, uh, give us back, go back to the point when we were relatively certain that we were on the right road, you know, and there were bad roads that we were on then. When sure. did we go off the right road and onto the wrong road? Is there a point in time that you can say the Ireland of the aspiration that liberty was oh, fought for happened. No, when? Well, no, it's a very interesting question. I think there's actually probably two points and I can't really identify the first. The first is way back in time, maybe in the 60s, probably 70s, when all of these ideologies started to filter in from outside and be taken up by students and academics and journalists and all that and being fed then intravenously into the public culture of Ireland. Uh, and that's been slowly happened. That was no problem. You know, you could deal with that mm. in terms of democratic discourse and debate. That was all part of the mix and I, I was part of that. And I did, in the Irish Times from 1990 onwards, combat that. And, and, you know, I was always on the other side of those arguments for reasons we might go into, you know, how that started for me. But, 
But but then there's another point, and this is a far more, I, I think, dramatic and drastic point. And I, I, I can't exactly say it was, but I can say approximately that it happened sometime. It's almost like a rupture, a moment of rupture, you know, that occurred uh, soundlessly. Perhaps about six years ago, five, six years ago, about 2013. My mother died in 2012, and that year, as far as I can recall it, and I recall it very graphically, you know, was a year that it was fairly within the normal course of events of Ireland for for that time. By 2014, I believe we had gone off the rails completely. And and the ways that I identify that would be that it was no longer possible to have a democratic conversation. That the, the, the certain people who wanted certain things had decided that this idea that people could sit around discussing what should or should not happen whether they agreed with things or did not agree with things. That was all passé. You know, that couldn't be allowed to continue because that was holding them up. And and that we had to get on with their agenda and forget about our country or how we saw it or how we wanted it to be and simply do what we were told. And that started, that really came in with a vengeance before the so-called marriage equality. I call it, I don't call it marriage equality. It wasn't, that was just a, a makey-up title, you know. It was basically a, a, a taking a sledgehammer to the constitutional protection of the family, of parenting and of, of marriage. And uh, that was, uh, you know, fundamentally... Th- the cause of the rupture. So you're saying that at that stage it became apparent that if you were on the other side, or in any argument, there are two sides always. Yes. One, this side, this liberal agenda side who, well, you know, drove these changes in the country, you couldn't put your head above the parapet. Was that it? They'd sh- shout you down? That, you were Well, broadly, and, and I suppose as a sketch, it's not bad. I mean, although I don't think that there's simply two sides to any argument. There right. are a multiplicity, okay. multiplicity of sides <laughs> yeah. to arguments. I mean, you know, people, this is what they try to do if you don't agree with us you're reactionary yeah. we're progressive so polarise it yes so I mean uh, you know the, the question of, of the gay marriage thing uh, I hadn't actually made any serious intervention I had made some mutterings uh, about why it was this was suddenly out of nowhere out of nowhere like becoming a priority like it was a chapter in the book where I go through the, the archives of the Irish Times and, and, and see because like they attacked me I was working for them but they were attacking me on the basis that I didn't seem to agree with this radical and, and wonderful new proposal to, for, to, for allow, to allow gays to be married and you would think from what they were, the way they were behaving that they had been campaigning assiduously for this for about 150 years maybe from the very beginnings of the newspaper but when you go back to the archives, you don't find that at all. You find virtually nothing before 2012 about this subject. An odd article here and there, which is about civil unions up to that point, and, and maybe then one or two very eccentric articles. One actually by a friend of mine, a gay man, Jerry McNamara, back in 1995. A great guy, a wonderful guy. And he was right. And he wrote, and he wrote about it very cynically. And, and, but it was kind of a, you know... He wasn't particularly enamoured of the idea of marriage in any sense, you know, because he was a radical uh, gay man. And, and, and uh, he, they, those guys don't see themselves as being part of mainstream, respectable culture. They're countercultural, you know, and I, he and I got on very well. And so, I mean, to talk about this as though, you see, what they tried to set up was that the only way you'd be opposed to this was because you hated gays, that you were a homophobe. And this was the, this is the, what they were looking for, to find scapegoats that they could daub with this, mm. this uh, 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 epithet. Um, but in fact, you know, my position was, I had been advocating, I'd been 
for 20 years. I mean, whatever, you know, there are no articles about in the Irish Times very much about uh, gay marriage, but there are a hell of a lot of articles about fathers and the treatment of them in family courts and about male suicide uh, and, and all these related subjects and men's health and, and so on. And the reason they're there is because I wrote them. And I was talking about this for years and I could see this coming that if, that it, you know, that, that the politicians who are now pushing gay marriage were the ones who had basically turned their backs on me and sniggered at the very idea that they might extend rights to fathers of any kind, uh, post-divorce or single fathers and so on. And here they were suddenly becoming, you know, uh, radical uh, progressives on this other question. Because why? Because there was a global ideological movement with huge resources showing a deep interest and sudden interest in Ireland. And they wanted to be on side for that. Tell me this, you know, you mentioned the times it didn't happen for years. What happened? Did people just suddenly speak up did new people come into the times that you know had this agenda what it came from outside this suddenly was announced from outside you see this okay. is this is part of the team and people book. took it up within the yeah. times and ran with it then you're saying this is how me. it works jerry you see like these things are all uploaded on on a kind of a program that you might call cool you know and that's the way it works that you're, it is insinuated to you that if you want to be a cool guy and a kind of person, you have to support all these agendas. It's nothing to do with social justice, because you can see the test is, well, OK, if you're in favour of social justice for, for gay people, you know, uh, that's fine. Why are you not also in favour of social justice for single fathers? Well, if you're not, then you're not in favour of social justice. Sorry, you're in, you're in favour of something else, but it's not social justice. And uh, uh, I, I, in fact, I, I would say that, uh, you know, overwhelmingly, the issue of what's happened to fathers in, in Irish society and continues. Like one in three children in Ireland are born out of wedlock. Uh, and that's just on, in the category of single fathers. And that's been the case for 10, 15 years. So we're talking about a hell of a lot of people. A significant cohort of families in Ireland are not protected by the law uh, for their most fundamental rights. Mm. And yet we're, been making, we're making up rights for groups that really you know, don't have any claim on parenthood, on marriage, or any of this stuff. That's, that was my objection. But I didn't actually raise that objection, to be honest. I know. See, because I'll tell you, I had turned down hundreds, mm. and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of requests from radio, television uh, people to get involved in debates about homosexuality, gay marriage, etc. This is coming up to 2014 and 2013. It started to really ramp yes. up then, you see. And I just turned them all down because I said I didn't have any particular... Uh, position on homosexuality. People think because I'm a Catholic that that was where my position came from, but it actually didn't come from there at all. I have no particular uh, view about the social uh, 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 context in relation to gay people arising from religious. You were drawn position. into this though uh, by oh, Rory O'Neill, uh, oh, aka well, Panty Bliss, I was who sitting, ultimately, and and this is uh, it's been to the to, with the law people and that you, you were defamed, so you were, and you yes. had to go and and seek remedy on that, well, which I, you eventually got. But you 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 didn't look, you weren't looking for money for this. You were no, looking for them to apologise. No, well, we simply asked them. I I I I was the one. I mean, I was on my own, but uh, I own people were in the same frame. Uh, I own an institute. David Quinn and people like that were implicitly, and Breed O'Brien, also a colleague of mine, the Irish Times, were implicitly attacked in this interview with Brendan O'Connor between Brendan O'Connor and uh, um, O'Neill. And, and um, a, the word homophobe came up and was not withdrawn. Now, that's 
to me, that was like a red light immediately because I know what that was. I, I've, I've looked into this. This is an attempt to demonise somebody and to marginalise them from discussion. Uh, and I also recognised the context for it because uh, even though I hadn't been out, he'd, he said I'd been out every night, more or less, attacking his happiness or some such thing. Uh, and um, that was not true. But there was an article I'd written precisely the day before, which was really about a meeting that I'd been at, a public meeting in which I'd been in the, on the Broadcasting Authority at the time. And, and there was various lobby groups there who were making their cases to the Broadcasting Authority. And and, uh, and, and as I heard them, one by one, and there was like people from climate change, there was a guy, a PR guy from Fine Gael, and they all had the same team. And the team was this, gay marriage. They, there was a gay man as well, he made a speech. And, and um, was, they had the same uh, demand that they not be required to go through debates in relation to the issues that they wanted to promote. The climate change guy said, oh, this is all, we're way beyond this now, we shouldn't have climate deniers, climate change deniers on, and we shouldn't be having to debate with them. Gay marriage said, oh, we've had opinion polls about gay marriage, everybody agrees with us, we shouldn't have debates. And I stood up and I said, well, no, hang on, the, the Constitution is the will of the people, and the Constitution says what marriage is, and, 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 and so on. So, you know, yes, you can change it, but you have to go through this procedure, which is a debate, a public debate, in which the Irish people have the right to defend their constitution against change if they want to. And and that's what democracy is. And I wrote this up. That happened before Christmas that year. And this, this was on the 11th of January, this interview was. And I'd written it on, I think, the 10th. It was just one day before I published belatedly this account of that meeting. That was what provoked it. So essentially what provoked it was me having the gall to suggest that we should have a proper debate about this question of changing marriage in its most fundamental lessons. I just want to move on from the whole Pantygate thing and, and that referendum, but just before I do, one last thing. Um, you, you come back to this a lot in the book, John, yeah. several times, and I just sat there and thought, have you lanced the boil? Are you done with it? Well, I don't think that was the point of the book, really. I mean, what this is really is... I, I was, in a certain sense, fortunate in this whole episode in that I had a ringside seat on scene, a very deep experience, a personal experience of how these people operate. I mean, I was fortuitous in actually being able to be there and have this happen to me and have my life turned upside down by these people and to be able to t- give people a blow-by-blow account so they can see the reality of what these people are like and what they're trying to do to our country. And essentially, what I'm telling people is that this is post-democratic that these people are not interested in democracy and that the results they have obtained have been obtained fraudulently, illegally, immorally as a result of bullying, of demonisation and of lies and of interference in all kinds of ways with this democratic system. Let me put this to you. Ultimately, you can say all that, but when the vote happened and the Irish people decided, John, you have to accept they decided to go with marriage equality, to... You oh know, yeah, yeah, pass, yeah. Uh, amend the constitution oh, well, I mean, on it's, abortion. It's in the co- yes, it is. But but I, there 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 are different chapters in this. So there's one chapter I deal with the nature of propaganda. People have no idea what propaganda is, and I explain to them what propaganda. So are you saying basically that people were brainwashed? Yes, it was a concerted for effort. Certain. For certain. And, and 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 then, do you not? respect or understand people's intelligence or leave that up to them? If you understand how propaganda works, it isn't as intelligence doesn't enter into it. I mean, the problem is that we have a media which is out of control. Our national media is completely out of control. 99% of the me- of journalists in Dublin, in the national broadcaster, in all the radio stations up there, in all of the... I'm not so sure about down the country because, you know, I'm not familiar with each one and uh, all the time but uh, I was watching all those and, and I mean, I know th- that situation intimately over the years. 
you know, there was a handful of people on the other side of all those discussions. And they were treated appallingly in most instances, including myself, whenever we tried to raise arguments and to, try to, to debate this openly in, 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 on radio and television. Uh, this is not the way media should behave. I explain what happened to me in the Irish Times. I was a journalist in the Irish Times for 24 years, a, a columnist. Uh, I served the newspaper, I think, very well. And uh, um, when this started... They, far from actually defending the fact that I was doing at all times what I was being paid to do, I was doing my job, they said, let's set their dogs to war upon me and let them rip me to shreds because I had the wrong opinion. When you run a newspaper or a radio station, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. You are there to provide platforms for people so they can discuss, disgusting, so that the outcome will be the right opinion. Whatever that may be. But when you have an outcome in circumstances such as this, you cannot definitively say that it is the right result. Which brings me on to something in a wider context. So Trump keeps saying fake news. Let's stay with this for a moment. He keeps saying fake news. Does that tie in with what you're saying? Or is that a different thing entirely? It's it's not a different thing, uh, although it's a kind of a... It's it's an oversimplification. Um, I know know what he's trying to do. Trump operates in slogans, and and I tend not to. Uh, I wouldn't use that kind of phrase Mm. because it's something that becomes meaningless with overuse, you see. But you can certainly say that the media in America is out, out of control now as well in a different way because overwhelmingly... The media there, I, I get feeds or uh, digests from a lot of American magazines and publications. Every day I'm bombarded with three or four articles in each one like about Trump. And it's like at the level of most of the time, Trump didn't polish his shoes this morning or some such. You know, it, it, that's the level of it. It's like they are so hostile to the president of the United States that they're incapable. Even if he were to suddenly start becoming the best president of the United States ever, nobody would know because they wouldn't tell them because they wouldn't be able to see it themselves. And that's what I'm talking about, the level of institutionalised bias that happens in journalism because of certain questions, whether it's Trump, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's abortion, has distorted journalism and rendered it meaningless. And not alone meaningless, actually it's not meaningless, it's worse than meaningless because it's actually damaging. We would be better off with no journalism than what we have now in Ireland. My God, that it's a hell of a a statement you make there. I mean every word of it. I'm serious. We do not have journalism. The the media are supposed to be the fourth state. And again, I say I'm not not commenting. It would take me a couple of years going around Ireland listening to radio stations at a local Mm, level. mm. I suspect they're much better. That's my... That was certainly the case 20 years ago. When I... You know, 10 years ago when I was a broadcasting authority, I was fairly familiar. And I knew the good stations and knew the bad ones. And there were a hell of a lot of good stations. And the provincial papers do their job too at a local level. I'm talking about the mainstream national media. The the newspapers, they, they... Like RTE, the national broadcaster. I mean... It shouldn't have bias. It shouldn't be a question that, you know, when, when, when I was liable, that they just simply said, that was a mistake, sorry. Instead, they tried to hide behind a Twitter mob to try to say, well, you know, maybe we'll get away with it if they, this guy gets scared off. I said, well, no, you know, let's have a debate. They wanted a debate about free speech then. And I said, OK, we'll have a debate about free speech, but let's have it on the high court. And it'll be more interesting there. And that's when things started to change. So yes, that, that shouldn't be necessary. This is the point. And... and <clears throat> So we have journalists who are not journalists. We have media who are not the fourth estate. The, the fourth estate, is the, the, the media is a very interesting thing, you know, because, the, you know, throughout history there have been different f- f- pillars of democracy and they generally agree to be four at any given time. And so they might be the government, the parliament, the media, 
the church or whatever it would be. The judiciary would be the, now. The church wouldn't be one anymore, but it was at one point. The media's always there because that's what conducts the conversation which, on which democracy depends. But it's actually in a very anomalous situation because whereas the others are all parliament, uh, government, uh, courts, are all more or less state institutions. They're certainly at that level. The media is generally privately owned. So it's an anomalous situation. So it works on the basis of checks and balances and, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And in America, for all its faults, you have actually a counterculture. You have voices, you know, against what the mainstream media, the New York Times and the Washington Post do. Uh, But in Ireland, you don't. There's no counterculture now in Ireland. There's only one voice. Uh, and that's the same. The Irish Independent, the Irish Times, the Examiner, they're the same as News Talk and RT. There's no difference. Jerry, it's fantastic to hear a straight talker on radio. John Waters, you're a legend. A message coming into us there by text this afternoon. Thank you indeed, indeed for that. Let me talk to you about something that actually uh, stuck me to the chair or stopped me in a, my tracks when I. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Read it in the book because I considered what you had to say. You talk about these two rooms now in Ireland, and we'll talk about the middle bit in a moment. Two rooms, at the, a room at the start of life and the room at the end of life. Now let's talk a bit about the, the start of life one and small children. Well, yes, this, this is the room in the crest, you know, where, you know, you go in and, and, and you see these babies sitting on mats or sleeping maybe for an hour on mats and, and, and from maybe 7.30 in the morning until 7 at night and being looked after by strangers and um, it's heartbreaking to see you know I mean I, I, I remember actually when my daughter Roisin was little like I remember going over to pick her up in London one time and being divert, you know redirected down the road to this to such a place and it horrified me you know it horrified me to see a little girl there sleeping among strange children and uh, and uh, so so that that so I had this idea that at the very start of life we we have this room that is almost like preparing you for a, f- a life of alienation or something or a life of, of not get your don't get your expectations of what this society owes you or will give you or you know that's so there's a lot to be said about that you know so that, that room. room John an awful lot of people have to use it because there's, yes. they need 
two salaries coming into a house to keep a roof over yes. their heads. Well, that, this is very interesting because I, I say to people, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful, like, you know, our young people, I mean, I, young people are idealistic and even though, you know, there would be, a lot of them would be on different sides of the arguments I'm talking about than I would be. I, I would have a lot of sympathy for them because they're idealistic and the, the problem here is that their idealism has been redirected into the wrong things by propaganda and by bullying and on by all kinds of things. What do you mean? You have to own a house, is that Well, no, no, but, but wouldn't it be better if they were able to actually look more cleanly at what's actually going on? The idea of owning a house, like, you know, when we were kids, you know, my father and, and, and two or three of his friends could get together and build a house for somebody in three weeks. And it would cost maybe a couple of weeks' wages between the whole lot of them. Now... We're told to have a, a roof over your head, you have to pay a roughly 25% of two incomes for about 30 years. Now, how did that actually come about? This is the issue. People are being enslaved by a system that is not, that they're told is inevitable, that they're told is naturalistic, that it is the only way things can be. But it's actually completely artificial and it is constructed not for the benefit of people, but for the benefit of, of big banks. Can I say that I lived in a rented house with my mother and father and they paid it off. It was built by a local authority and they had no big mortgage. Yeah. And eventually, after a long, long time, they were given the option to buy, but at a very reasonable I, sum. I never heard the word mortgage in my house growing up. My father, I'd say, never used to utter that word in his life. He never borrowed money. He always saved money for whatever he wanted. And he bought, if he wanted to change house, and we moved a couple of times, he would just simply save the money and buy the house. So, John, is the ideal scenario to have one person, if you are a family, mother and father and children, to have one person at home and one well, I think for for a family, uh, that that would be ideal in a different context. I, I'm talking about a different context. Yes. I mean, that's a different argument. And, 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 and of course, you know, given the situation, it is necessary for people to have two people mm. out. Mother, mother and father need to be out in order to pay for this. My point is, this does not need to be the way it is. And if we were not being distracted by nonsense all the time, being pummeled, pumped our way by politicians who know exactly what they're doing, we would be able to have conversations that would actually get to the bottom of why our system has to be like this because I know it hasn't. So go to the other end of life. We'll talk about the middle part yeah. in the minute where you and I are stuck at the at the moment and heading towards well, that. Well, yeah, we're heading to the other room. Uh, that other room. Talk yeah. about... Well, I, about you know, I think all of us, had, uh, you know, who are, who are uh, still at liberty, if you like, uh, have had to walk, go into these places in different contexts. Uh, I was lucky in the sense that my mother died at home and, and we managed to keep her out of, of, of the old folks' home, as they're called. Uh, uh, and and I, I'm... Very glad about that, because any time I've gone into those places, they I have to take to the bed myself for about a couple of days to get over the absolute um, desolation that I feel for those poor people who have lived all their lives in this country and contributed to this country and built this country up, and they're seated around the wall, uh, the perimeter of a room, you know, and Mark Cagney is shouting at them from the corner, and there isn't a word exchanged between them. They're probably doped up to their ears. And I go in and, and, and there's no conversation, you know. And if you get involved, it takes a while to, for them to tow out, you know. Now, I, I had to visit n numerous people in different contexts through the years in those places. And they're horrific places. I don't want to end up in one of those places. Most people, don't, if they know what they're like, don't want to end up in them. And that's, that was not the way when I was growing up. There was always, in every home, there was a granddad or a grandmother and they would be sitting on the windowsill knitting or smoking their pipe or whatever it was. And they, had, they were respected in the community because they had done their work for their life and they were there to be 
looked after by their people and by their community. And that's all gone now. Because nobody has time to look after people. Nobody has time to listen to people. We, our culture is constructed to shut people out. The people who, who value this country for its great wealth of tradition and, 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 and wisdom and, 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 and so on are shunted aside and not listened to in these debates, so-called debates. But moreover, they are simply, as soon as possible, moved off to the county home with equivalent. Remember when we were kids, like, the idea of the county home was the greatest horror. Oh, my word, I remember it being spoken about even here. Yeah. There was a name on the place here uh, in town, and once you mentioned that name... I remember, Jerry. Uh, I mean, I don't, I, this isn't in the book, I don't think, uh, I, although I have written it somewhere. Uh, there was a woman called Miss Conway who lived two doors up from us, like an old woman. And she was a bit of a battle axe in ways, like, but we were a bit scared of her. But I'll never forget the day she was renting her house and there was another old woman who owned the house who basically evicted her. And the ambulance came to collect Miss Conway one day and take her to the county home. They had to drag her out of her own house, out of her own home, and drag her into the back of the ambulance. And like the screams of her, you could hear them two miles away. That has stayed with me all my life. That was the beginning of a, of a sense of Ireland like that I, I, I thought there's a darkness here that, that we need to start thinking about. And that darkness has got worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, and so now, you see, we have entirely materialistic uh, culture where you're useful to this. You're educated to be useful to the economy. And then you're in the economy for 35 or 40 years. And then you can go take a run and jump at yourself and go off. And, and the next thing, but hang on, it's okay. It's okay, Jerry, because our government, our enlightened progressive government and our enlightened progressive media, they have plans for both of these rooms. They can empty them. One of them will be emptied by abortion and the other will be emptied sooner or later by euthanasia. That is where we're going in this country because there is no humanity left. We have a cadre of politicians who have no humanity. They are absolutely out of control. They are driven. Particularly, I have to say, the female ones. There's something crazy about them. You just look at them. Uh, I won't name them because we're into uh, red light territory here. But we know who they are. And these people, they have no humanity whatsoever. And no love for anybody in Ireland, only for the ideology that they have espoused all their lives and want to impose on every single person on the, in this land. So I sit here and think, I sit here in despair listening to you. I were, I really do. I despair for Jerry. the generations to come, the youngsters that are in those creches at the moment, the people like ourselves yes. who are in the middle heading to that other room that you talk about. Give us Is back the bad roads. Let's go back. Get our country back from these people before it's too late. How can we? By getting, by waking up. By waking up. We need to, st- to stop this. We need to get our country, rest our country from these people. These people have no... You see... Our country has been run for the benefit of outsiders, multinationals who are here freeloading, tax-free, you know, and they're imposing their will on our people, on our, our government. And we're told, John, oh, sure, aren't they great? Look at the employment they give, and sure, without them, where would we be? Uh, well, we, well, where we would be would be hopefully thinking for ourselves. We would have developed, if we had had that kind of culture, we would have developed a cadre of, of leaders now who would be capa- capable of running this country in the context of having an indigenous economy. That, is, that has never been considered. We've had foreign direct investment as the sole means of driving our economy for 40 years. And that's a disaster because not alone uh, can it be withdrawn at any time. We're totally dependent on the whim of the President of the United States, whoever it may be. And I think if we wait for term two of Mr. Trump, and it will come, 
we might find some shocking things emanating from that quarter, from our point of view. But even more deeply than that, there is the fact that, you know, to be dependent in this way is wrong in the first place. I mean, the analogy I use about it is that it's like you inherit a shop from your grandparents and there's a flat upstairs. And you think, well, look, I have my life to, to live and I can open a shop. What will I sell? Maybe I'll make watches. Maybe I'll make clocks. Maybe I'll become a shoemaker. And you said, I don't know. Do you know what I'll do? I'll rent it out and live upstairs. That's what we've done. That's our model of economy. That's the cadre of politicians we have. I mean, you see, our understanding of eco- economics is so banal that we don't understand that economics is like, money is like the blood in the human body. It pumps when it's healthy, it pumps into every single limb and, and, and corner of the body. And we have this thing that is some kind of zero-sum go- game, that we have to get it stuff in or they, from other people or that we won't survive. You know, an economy like, you know, my, my grandmother had a farm, you know, and, and she, she produced most of the things she needed. And people say, now, oh, this is all very nostalgic. And all that. This, she, she produced 90% of what she needed, bread, butter, milk, fruit, vegetables, and so on. And on a Saturday night, the Brady's travelling shop from Elfin, she lived in Cluny Quinn, came by and she brought out two trays of eggs and she exchanged that for the things she couldn't produce, sugar and, and, and tea and so on. That's an economy. There's no other kind of economy. That's what we need to get back to. The idea of producing what we need for ourselves and looking after our own people. But instead, we have turned our country into what Thomas David called a sandbank. It is not a country anymore. It is not a nation anymore. It is a piece of ground on which certain people think they can walk all over the native people. It's time for us to wake up and take our country back. And the only way I think we can do that is by being prepared. There will be another crash very soon, relatively soon. That might be our opportunity, but it will be our last one. You would late lunch on LMFM Radio. Lots of comment for John Waters, and I'm going to read them in detail a little bit later on. But I will just tell you that everything coming to us today is saying... Well done. Thank you, John. Thank you for speaking up. And I'm paraphrasing the messages that are coming into us today. And that's coming to you, John, this afternoon from many of our listeners on late lunch. Can I come back to something? Because time is going to beat us quickly now that uh, is very pertinent to to today. And I want to read a quote uh, from the book at, at, at this stage. We are slaves of a new kind, indentured to technologies which steal our time, creativity and imagination. Yeah. You're not a social media guy. No, no. Uh, no, this is, this is very... These things are all, by the way, they're all integrated in the book. The book is a kind of a story, as much as it is... Uh, yeah, and I want to analysis. tell people, you've written this book to your father. Yeah. So, a lot of the time, I'm, I'm comparing I'm, my father's life and his way of being with what's happening now. And he was a, a tradesman. A cra- he, he drove a mail car all, most of his life, but he was a mechanic, a trained mechanic, and he was also a carpenter and all kinds of things. So he used his hands. And, and one of the things, ideas in the book is that the use of the hands has been taken away from people. But that was, not alone was that important in its own way, but it was actually hugely formative of people's thinking because they encountered the world in a physical way through their senses. And therefore, everything had to be checked Everything had to make sense. Everything had to be right. You know, if when, the, when the electrician leaves, the lights better work. You know, when the carpenter's done his job, the spirit level better be level, you know, and so on. So, so now we have a different kind of, of society where people who think they're smarter than all those people and they're going around with iPhones, and I have an iPhone, but I don't let it dominate my life. But they do. And they think that because they have it, that they're as smart as the iPhone. 
in a certain sense, or smarter than the iPhone. That is them plus the iPhone is their intelligence. But actually what's actually happening is the iPhone is stealing their intelligence. It's stealing their memory because they're getting lazy. They're not remembering things. They're leaving things to Google and so on. Lots of different things, you know. And they're talking off the top of their heads about things that they don't know anything about. And that makes up for the greater part of what amounts to a discourse now on Twitter and all this kind of stuff. People abusing one another because... And the abuse comes from a very simple syndrome. It's people who don't know what they're talking about making sure that nobody takes them on. You know when somebody is, is like that, they become very belligerent, belligerent very soon if you start questioning them because they don't want to get you to get to the raw nerve of their ignorance. And that's what social media is really about, uh, as well as the anonymity and all that. But all these technologies, so this is a very strong theme in the book about my father, you know. My father, when... He, he, he used to work like something like 18 hours a day like or something ridiculous. He got up at half four and didn't stop until nearly eight o'clock at night. And uh, he and then he worked at the weekend fixing the van because it was always falling apart. But he could do it. Like, and, mm. and I helped him. And there's a lot in about that. Like, and the things he would teach me and how he taught me and what it meant, you know. Um, but he used to go around the town uh, every other day to different places. Uh, there was a guy called Dick Nally. He was a saddle maker. There was a guy called Ned Rock. He was a shoemaker. Uh, you know, there was a, a, scene, a, a, a tailor. There was, down in Balladrine then, there was Paddy Lavin, who was a watchmaker. And he would spend an hour, an hour and a half with those fellas. And I would be with him, you know, and I'd sit down on a bag of meal or on a corner of a, a, a box or something and, and uh, be listening to these fellas. Like. And there's an American philosopher called Matthew Crawford, and I quote him, and he describes this as a... He says, this is a republic. This is a republic where these men who have control of their own talents and of their own humanity, <coughs> excuse me, and of their own, you know, lives <coughs> in a certain sense, but are also aware that their, their lives are given to them. So they're, they're holding those two things together, that they meet and they talk and they discuss what things mean. This was a republic. There was a republic in this country once very briefly in my childhood. And I was in it with my father but it's not there now. My God Almighty, I, I sit here today and you, I said in the introduction, you are a thought-provoking man and you really are John Waters. And this is resonating hugely with my listeners today. John's been on from Beliver and County Mead to say, Jerry, you're an absolutely fantastic guy to have John Waters with you on the show today. I really admire everything he's saying. He's speaking the the truth. Thank you for a great job. Margaret, on from RD. Very enlightening interview. John speaks the truth. Pity we don't have more people like him speaking out and in government are involved with the HSE. I don't think he wants that one, uh, Margaret, to be honest with you. Uh, but we know what you're talking about there, the health. Uh, Jimmy and Dunboyne, congratulations to Jerry on having the foresight to have John on the show. He's a revelation. He's spot on. He's saying the things that we've been saying for years, but we don't have a voice. Yeah. That's the thing, you know. And it, it, that word came up there a few times, truth. We're not even allowed to say there's a, such a thing as truth anymore, you know. But we know what the truth is. It, what I say is not, is not me. It's not what I, as it were, quote-unquote, believe. It's not my, quote-unquote, opinion. I'm telling you the truth that is in my bones that I've experienced all the 63 years of my life in this country. And John, can I ask you this? Again, I want to come back to this. Who is behind... All of these point to... Something else or somebody else yes. being beneath this or driving this. Well, Who is that? The book will help a lot of people in this because there's a chapter in it about, for example, the LGBT uh, global 
ideology and how it started and how it developed and how it's all set out there. Mm. I actually quote from early uh, from a book that was written at a very early stage about how they would do what they did. Uh, this is external. I'll just say one thing. Like we have a, a minister for children who's an American lesbian. Why? Why? Why not? Why? Why? How does that happen? And who thought it was a good idea? And what's it about? See, can we ask these questions anymore? Probably not, because you'll be rammed for even well, saying I, that. I, I, there's no chance if I go to America that I end up as Minister for Children of the United States, is there? I don't know, because no. they say it's the land of opportunity. You it's might. Not, not that much opportunity, Jerry. <laughs> Opportunity is the word. Opportunistic <laughs> but is a fairness, bit more like But in it. fairness to Catherine Zappone, she stood for election. She was a senator first. Then she's elected. She's an independent. She happens to be needed in the numbers to form a government. She's in there and she's given a portfolio. Let me say it a different way, Jerry. I, I'm a father. I have a daughter. And, 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 and I talk a little bit about this. Not as much as I would like to because I can't. But I had a hell of a time, hard time, uh, in, when my daughter was a baby with family law courts and all the rest of it. And I tried to make a case in public in the face of Irish politicians. And very occasionally, strange things would happen. I would be on platforms and I would talk and then the politician would talk. And, and afterwards he'd say, you're dead right about that, keep going, you know. Oh, yeah, you're right. But he wouldn't say anything in public. And very often as well, I mean, even stranger things happened. And I won't ever mention the names of these people. Like, uh, it would be a betrayal of trust. But there are at least three or four senior politicians who came to me with specific family problems in this area. And still they did nothing. Oh, it's a world so, of smoke and mirrors and image and PR and spin and all this so, type of so thing. So I say, you know, if we're really interested in family, they, they, maybe I should put it a different way. Why didn't Enda Kenny appoint me to the Senate and make me Minister for Children? Now, there's a question. I don't particularly want to be a minister, but I would be a hell of a lot better minister for children than Tatrin's a poem. Yep. I'll leave it at that for today. Thank you indeed for joining me Thank on the you, show. Jerry, the book yeah. is called Give Us Back the Bad Roads by John Waters. I've read and that's it. That's my father on the front I pulling the model T. It's I an amazing photograph. Uh, it's the last chapter describes what the photograph is about. He's going to sign it and we're going to give a copy away and I'll tell you how you can win that in a wee while on the show. But for the moment, John Waters, where has the time gone? It's been a real pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much, Jerry. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.